Don't forget to have banter at the beginning. People love banter. They want to have a parasocial relationship with us, feel like they're listening in. <laughs> they just want to have the banter that we have. I'm just going to keep it casual. Hey, everybody. <laughs> this is your inner child as an idiot. This is the podcast where we look back on things from your childhood and see if they're any good to begin with. My name is DJ. I'm Damon. I appreciate the lean. I feel like I could hear the lean in your voice. That's what that's what I like. Come on in. Cop a squat. <laughs> cop a squat. You didn't even get a chair for these people. Cop, cop a squat. squat. You can cop a squat in a chair. It's not a literal squat necessarily. It's a sitting. You're just sitting. We already have a word for it. You don't have to cut. You cop a sit. You don't have to cop a squat. You could say sit, but it's not a cool way to say it. Do I turn the chair around and like turn my hat backwards? How cool are you? Ooh, good point. You can't do the chair and the hat because then your hat, your hat is technically facing forward and that's not cool. Right. <laughs> that's a good point. <laughs> you know what I feel, Damon? Yeah. <laughs> Love is in the air. Oh. It's time for a romantic comedy. Okay. It's time for the prequel to another classic rom-com. It's the spiritual successor to a classic rom-com. It's the casting sequel to a rom-com we've watched before. The casting sequel. That's a thing I made up. <laughs> Are you thinking of Fierce Creatures, the casting sequel to A Fish Called Wanda? No. <laughs> Surprisingly, no. Let's just say we've seen a movie with these two leads in it before. Oh, I know what you're talking about. You're talking about Bridget Jones' Diary, the... No, Bridget Jones' The Edge of Reason, the sequel to Bridget Jones' Diary. The casting and literal sequel to no, Bridget Jones' Diary. No, Damon, you idiot. We're re-watching The Two Towers. <laughs> just, it was my favorite one. I like the one just that has randomly. no... I like the one that has no beginning and no end. <laughs> That's my favorite one. Uh, that's nice. I like that. It is a good rom-com. Gimli and Legolas. <laughs> Let's see. Do you need another? Okay, this was a, a 90s. 90s rom-com. 90s power couple on on film. They weren't really a couple. Heterosexual? Yes. Of okay. Course. okay. Of course. It's the 90s. <laughs> hey, it's the 90s. We're all fucking women. Okay. I mean, okay. A classic 90s sequel, sitcom that is, that is a sequel to- rom-com. It's not it's not a, a casting sequel. sequel. Casting sequel meaning it's the same couple that has been the leads in a movie we've seen. Oh, Runaway Bride, which is the casting sequel to Pretty Woman. No. Am I close? Is Julia Roberts involved? No, but you're in the right neighborhood of movie and also we haven't watched Pretty Woman. <laughs> Great point. Great point. I am also convinced we've watched Jurassic P P Park, which you have told me several times we have not. So, not Julia Roberts, but I'm in the sphere of Julia Roberts. Her yeah. sphere of influence, if you were playing yeah. Civilization VI, that's the sort of, she's yes. winning a cultural victory in this regard. Hmm. Who's like Julia Roberts, but not Julia Roberts? And there's another movie, a famous movie, or not long after this, with the same couple, again, a 90s power couple, another rom-com. Oh, A Few Good Men with Jack Lemmon and Walter Matthau. Another great rom-com. Another few good men. <laughs> Wait, why did I call it few good men? Grumpy old men. God damn it. Grumpy-er old men. And no. <laughs> <laughs> because, again, I said heterosexual. Uh, we haven't watched Grumpy Old Men. And that's not a rom-com. Actually, it is. They, they get with Anne-Margaret and Sophia Loren, depending on which one you're watching. 
I do. Not both of them at the same time. It's not that it's not that progressive. Just why don't you tell me the movie we're doing? It's got I actually do, I'm glad this is taking a while because I don't know you that. You forgot the movie. movie. Let's just say it takes place in a famous West Coast city and they don't get much slumber. Oh my god, of course. Sleepless in Seattle. Sleepless right. in the Seattle. Tom Hanks. Meg they Ryan. go on to You Got Mail, but they didn't have a... Oh, we have done Joe versus the Volcano. You're absolutely right. And I feel this is a little bit more in my own brain, but this feels like a spiritual successor to When Harry Met Sally, like the classic kind of setup yeah. rom-com that kind of became a structure. It's been a while since I've seen When Harry Met Sally too, but so I don't want to lean too far into that. But yeah, Sleepless in Seattle, Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan, they're in... Somebody's in Seattle. At least one of them. Jeff Bezos is there. Nirvana's there. <laughs> Bill Gates has his mansion there. There's a Chaluli. His artistic retreat is there. Mm-hmm. Rita Wilson's in this. Victor Garber is also in this, I believe. Okay. Is Owner this where and designer of the Titanic, Victor Garber. Did, <laughs> did they meet on this? Did Rita Wilson and... When did... They become. I want to say yes, and I will say yes because that's my headcanon. They met and fell in love while he was contractually obligated to fall in love with Meg Ryan. Ooh, yikes! That's why he never worked again. Bill Pullman is Rosie O in this. Is this? I get this one, and and it's you got mail sequel. You got. I get them confused, and I think no, that one has Dave Chappelle. This one, Rosie O'Donnell is playing Dave Chappelle in it. Okay. All right. No, no, no. It's not what you think. She just really hates trans people. Oh, no. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just making a lighthearted joke about transphobia. Everyone, everyone <laughs> calm down. It's like you can't even make a joke anymore. Am I uh, helping with your episode? Am I assisting, you know, getting people excited with all my uh, casual jokes? Do you remember the premise of this movie? Let's, let's go there. So Sleepless in Seattle, he call his son, precocious ugh, mm. son, calls into a conservative version of Loveline on MTV and says that he wants his dad's great. And he calls his dad Sleepless in Seattle, or that's his like sort of like, you know, when people write to advice yeah. columns. Everybody I think knows that's that. it. And his dad doesn't know he did this. So he's sort of like. Meg Ryan is listening to the radio show across the country in New York, I think. Tom Hanks is the Seattleian. But eventually it ends at the Empire State Building. This is the one. Steak Building uh, is what I said, and I stand by that. The Empire State (laughs) Building. The Omaha Steak Building. (laughs) In, surprisingly, New York City. It's amazing. But they did win it. New York City won it on Wheel of Fortune. And that's why it's the (laughs) Omaha Steak Building. They said, well, we don't know where to put this, Pat. And so they just put it there. They won it in 1912. Little known fact that Wheel of Fortune was on in 1912. Did you know it was originally called the Empire Skate Building? (laughs) And the whole thing was on a wheel? (laughs) Stupid. Stupid. They fall in love with the Empire State Building, which is a reference to an affair to remember? I believe that I stated in the Joe versus the Volcano episode, that that was peak Meg Ryan. Joe or sleep? Joe. For me, it's peak mm-hmm. Re- Meg Ryan as far as my like crush on her. I think this might be closer to peak Meg Ryan in terms of the cultural, cultural zeitgeist. We get it. You're ahead of the curve. You are a trend spotter. You write in to Vogue and tell people who to have crushes on and who not to have crushes on. We get it. They're like, hello, preteen... <laughs> DJ, 
who are you into right now? And, you're and I'm like, like Topanga. <laughs> and they're like, every year you just oh. write Topanga over and over yeah. and over again. Yeah. yeah, I guess so. This is the beginning of Tom Hanks moving over to dramas. I mean, this isn't a drama, but. Is this before Philadelphia? This is like same year as Philadelphia. It might have been the same year, but this is like his last hurrah in straight up comedies. And then it's on to the Oscars for old, old thanks after this. Was he into typewriters by this point? Do you know that? Uh, Chances are. I mean, he's probably made a few million from Bachelor Party and the Burbs in order to buy a few sweet ass typewriters. Did you know that his entire career, he has been living on his money? From Bosom Buddies, and just touch the rest of it. <laughs> the sweetest plum, Bosom Buddies. Now, when did he get into draining the blood of young children in order to stay young and wield power over the deep state? When did that start for him? Well, I mean, you'll, you'll notice that an executive producer on this movie is George Santos. <gasps> it's Soros. We're, we're beyond the looking glass here, people. I messed, I messed that up. Wait, are you saw? <laughs> is it George Santos? <laughs> I was like, I was going to let it slide. I was like, I don't know if that's, I don't know if that really, George Santos isn't really known. George Santos is more known for claiming to have done things more than actually doing them. (laughs) Wow, did I botch that joke. So we're going to watch Sleepless in Seattle, and we're going to, I mean, if it does pair well with the blood of... (laughs) Infant children. So I'm trying to remember the fake, the adrenochrome. That's it, adrenochrome. Mm -hmm. I'm pretending I don't know what it is. Me and DJ are also in the Illuminati. As you can tell from my youthful face, <laughs> that uh, I've definitely been sucking on the adrenochrome. Adrenochrome! I'm trying to throw him off the scent by pretending not to know what it is. My immense political power, probably. <laughs> well, I mean, you used to write for Vogue. You wrote Topanga Weekly, which is weird because <laughs> it's a monthly magazine. So you just wrote four columns in each issue. They just put four in each episode. <laughs> Uh, and it's just like Mrs. Topanga, whatever her last name is. <laughs> Mrs. Okay. Topanga Topanga. It's like Mario. Mr. DJ Topanga. <laughs> All right, we're going to watch Sleepless in Seattle. Wait, is Topanga the actress's name or the character's the name? Character's name. <laughs> her name's Danielle Fisher, I think. I, I believe she's. Oh, that's right. That does ring a bell now. What with the Girl Meets World cinematic universe. We'll cover it at some point. Please, no. I don't want to. We're going to watch Sleepless in Seattle. Watch with us. Yay! Damn it. It's Valentine's Day. Love is in the air. There's like flower petals all up in my face. Yeah, like a standard Valentine's Day. Yeah. There's two things you're going to want to do. You're one going to do this time I'm going to want to do them. Okay, what are those two things? Engaging. Yes, and. Thank you. One, you're going to want to fill out the survey that's in our show notes. It's going to ask you some questions. What if I'm not feeling it? Well, that's fine. What what is the survey going to do for me? Well, the survey is going to, it's going to do a couple of things. It's going to give us more information and let us Mm -hmm. serve you better ads and connect you with better information and all that kind of stuff. And it's also going to get you a little 2023 recap episode. What? Oh, wow. Okay. You can't get anywhere else. Mm. If you like listening to this show, and hopefully you do, turn it off if you don't. There's so many other things yeah, to listen to. you're 20 minutes into a show you don't like. Go outside. <laughs> get touch on grass, grinder, as the kids say. Or whatever. Yeah, touch grass. I guess you could touch grass. I mean, we don't know where they are. That's the beauty of podcasts. You could be touching grass 
while also listening to a podcast you hate at 1.25 speed, no less. And if you really love us, if you want to go steady with us, you can become a patron if you want. Mm-hmm. Now, we got a lot of patrons. Don't get me wrong. I won't be able to spend time exclusively with you, but you'll be part of an elite group that I visit every once in a while. Orally. That's the kind of relationship you want to be in, right? <laughs> Maybe this romance metaphor doesn't work super well, but anyway, patreon.com slash your inner child is an idiot. Not to mention money's exchanging hands in this, Ooh, yeah, in this relationship. really crumbles if you examine it too closely. Maybe don't. <laughs> On with the show. <laughs> <laughs> and we are back. We watched Sleepless in Seattle, starring... Everyone. Tom Hanks. Meg Ryan. Mm-hmm. Rita Wilson. Victor Garber. Gabby Hoffman. Gabby Hoffman. Rosie O'Donnell. Rosie O'Donnell's in there. David Hyde Pierce. Yep. Bill Pullman. Rob Reiner. Music by Mark Shaman, who I learned, the reason I saw that name and I was like, oh, hey, it's because I just watched Hairspray on vacation. <laughs> okay. Musical Hairspray music or John Waters' yeah, Hairspray? Yeah, the, the movie musical Hairspray. Mm-hmm. And he also did the music for A Few Good Men. Ba-ba-ba-bang. You may not have noticed because the music in this was appropriate. <laughs> the music in A Few Good Men was like... That's weird. It feels like the music from the porno version of A Few Good Men. Let's just say he had a good year of practicing between <laughs> that movie and this movie. Since I chose this movie, I guess I shall recap. Them's the rules. Sam is a recently widowed architect, because this is a romantic comedy after all, living in Chicago. Mm-hmm. He and his son, Jonah, moved to Seattle to get a fresh start. And then later, I think I say like it's a year and a half later at some point, Jonah is concerned about his dad's overwhelming sadness and calls into the Dr. Marsha radio show. Everybody knows Dr. Marsha radio show. It's syndicated mm-hmm. across the nation. Broadcast of Sleepless in Seattle, as he's called. Yep. On that is very popular and attracts a lot of potential suitors for Sam, including Baltimore journalist Annie, played by the lovely Meg Ryan, and some emotional infidelity and light stalking ensues, and then they get together at the very end of the movie. Mm-hmm. That's it. Sleepless in uh, Seattle. They you really front-loaded a lot of Empire information, and then State. right at the end, it's just like, and they eventually fuck. So, I mean, no, they don't. They hold hands. Manual fucking is what I call that. <laughs> <laughs> That's where that word comes from. Mm-hmm. You did mention a lot of people in this movie, and it felt like every time I turned a corner, there was another recognizable person. And I couldn't tell if I'm in retrospect, I'm like, wow, there are so many people in this. But it's really like David Hyde Pierce at this time was not yet a person of worth. (laughs) Well, a lot of people debate that, especially (laughs) in political circles. Personhood begins at your successful sitcom. Mm, that uh, well, so, a successful sitcom that gets syndicated. That's when a person's yes. worth is determined. So Rosie O'Donnell, yeah, she would, got her talk show, which was syndicated from the off. That's a person of worth. David Hyde Pierce had to wait a hundred episodes. Yeah. Person of worth. <laughs> wait. I feel like Victor Garber would have been recognizable to a select group of people. Broadway facts, but not. Yes. I wasn't going to say it. I'm glad you said it. <laughs> also, same thing with no. Dana Ivey, who owns the house that she's constantly changing how what she wants done by Sam. She's in one scene. Oh. But you might remember yeah. her from, I mean, she's in a slew of things. She's also a Broadway person, but she's in like the two Adams Family movies from the 90s. That's right. She was in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels. 
Is she the mom in Titanic too? No, that's that's the woman I've named, not Swoozy Kurtz. She's the woman who kind okay. of reminds me of Swoozy Kurtz. Yeah. But anyway, I recognize that lady. I think probably from Adam's film. <laughs> also, Francis Conroy, the matriarch from Six yeah. Feet Under is in this. Also from yes. the Ryan Murphy verse. Carrie Lowell from Law and Order Original Recipe plays the ghost of the wife. She was one of the many uh, assistants to the assistant DA in this, in Law and Order. She was also Mrs. Richard Gere for a sustained period of time. Did you say Carrie Lowell? Carrie Lowell. Carrie Lowell? Carrie Lowell. So Carrie like, Lowell. she was also the lead singer of Little Feet. No, that's Lowell George. <laughs> that is a joke Classic I'm smiling fan. at. <laughs> it's because it's stupid. <laughs> Agreed. Agreed. So I was reading a little bit about this, mm-hmm. and if anybody is an Efron head out here, they can correct my timeline here. But it seems like, so she wrote this, and she had also written When Harry Met Sally, which we'll watch at some point. I had some hesitation on whether to do this one first or When Harry Met Sally, because that is like the kind of template setter. But I chose this one simply for the Hanks and Meg Ryan of it all. It just felt... felt well, it's our second Hanks and Meg Ryan uh, joint after Joe yeah. versus the Volcano. And I guess we'll eventually get to the third one. You've got mail as well. So we're really uh, table setting for a lot of rom-coms in our future. Is there another Hanks and Meg Ryan movie I'm forgetting? I don't think so. Okay. I think it's just those three. And this is the first or the second of those, right? Because Joe versus the Volcano was first. As, I think this might be the first. T- this was before Joe vs. the... I don't think so. Was it? I should know that. I feel like... Oh, no. Well, you Joe sound like a Vulcan robot. It's like 89. I do? Oh, yeah. I think it... Hold on. I'm just checking it real quick. I'm on Screen Rant, a site we can all agree on. Yeah, it's just the three. It's just the three. Screen Rant's ranking them and has You've Got Mail as number one. I mean, I've seen You've Got Mail once, but come on. If you name it after a very time-sensitive phrase... I feel like that already knocks you down a peg. What about Sleepless in Seattle? Nobody has insomnia anymore. It's such a nice thing. <laughs> it's true. We were all not sleeping. We all lived in Seattle because we were all joining grudge bands. And then we eventually said, oh, Starbucks is moving everywhere. So we don't have to live here anymore. We don't have to go here. And we all moved out again. Are you still Googling or did you forget that the original question was when was Joe versus the Volcano? Oh, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> What's your name again? Joe versus Volcano. Are you ready for this? Yeah. Do you have Crow handy? Joe versus the Volcano, 1990. Yeah. Oh, wait. I I have Crow handy. You have Joe versus the Volcano, 90. Sleepless in Seattle, 1993. And here's the weird thing. You've got mail 2027. (laughs) We all have memories of that movie, right? It's it's one of the Mandela effect things. (laughs) Sinbad is in it instead of Tom Hanks. So it wasn't actually on the list. So she had been, uh, Nora Ephron had been a successful screenwriter, but she came to this and there was already a screenplay and a director in place. I'm going to probably not get this exactly right, the timing of it, but it seems like that was in place. And then she got brought in to rewrite it because they wanted more comedy. It was kind of a sappier, like straight ahead romance. Mm -hmm. And then the director didn't care for the comedic direction of it, ended up leaving the project for creative differences and the cheese. He wanted it more dramatic. I th- yeah. It sounded like he wanted Oof. more like earnest Oof. and I like uh, not to spoil it, but uh, she added a lot of pretty funny elements. I think, I don't know if she's, ho- I mean the idea you know, of this being played like completely straight. I don't think I'm overstating it. Uh, sends literal chills down my spine. 
the idea of this being played with a straight face. I think without exaggeration, it would be the greatest human tragedy <laughs> in the history of the world. I think we can all agree I'd rather eat glass than watch that movie. <laughs> I know of Nora Ephron, but I think because of what this sort of movement became movement. later in the 90s, <laughs> okay, the, the romantic comedy... Mm-hmm. I remember the riots, the rom-com riots of 1995. <laughs> Look, when you grow up on the streets of East LA like I do, <laughs> you remember things differently. I'm just saying, like, I think this started a trend, and I didn't like when I kind of came more into consciousness in my teens, which mm. would have been the late 90s. After your coma. I was yeah. like, plus I'm like a teenager, so I don't know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> Not that I do now either, but I was like- and Now you have a podcast. These are stupid. This whole mm-hmm. romantic comedy thing is stupid. And so when you go back and revisit it, I'm like, this kind of set the, sets the table in a good way that I didn't recognize at the time. That's all I'm saying. The movement. I mentally owe Nora Ephron's memory of an apology. That's what I'm saying. I was looking over and <laughs> I realized that I'm a sexist bastard because I find that I have sort of conflated her and Nancy Myers yeah. into one thing. Yes. So Nancy Myers more the like cable knit sweater vibe. Nancy, I mean, they're not dissimilar. Nancy Myers also has a lot of like rom-com from upper affluent people. But I feel like there's like a bite missing in, in Nancy Myers stuff. Like Nancy Myers is something's got to give with Diane Keaton, Jack Nicholson and the beach. <laughs> What's it a- sounds like that's somebody's name. And uh, welcome to and the, beach. and the beach. We got Jack here and the beach coming at you mornings. In the greater Duluth area. Stay safe. Why would you tell me where I am? Uh, The Holiday is also Nancy Myers. It's Complicated, which was about Meryl Streep making croissants and getting railed by two different guys. At the same time? Uh, I haven't seen the movie, so I can't speak to whether Steve Martin and Alec Baldwin have sex with Meryl Streep at the same time. But what a movie that would be. I'm impressed with the croissants while making sweet love to both. Oh, I didn't even think. Yeah, because you can't let you can't get things to get too hot because then the butter starts melting and you're going to fuck up your layers. So but you can't let it get too cold because then you'll be too stiff because to no one's going to so. want to have sex in the cold. But there is a lot of like Nora Ephron movies. I do like I mean, Julie and Julia was her last one. I think she died in 2012. I think it was kind of a surprise to a lot of people. But Julie and Julia was one of hers. She wrote When Harry Met Sally. She also wrote the novel Heartburn, which is a fictionalized account of her marriage to Carl Bernstein of Woodward and fame. That was made into a movie with Meryl Streep and Jack Nicholson, previously mentioned on this very episode, where she finds out that Jack Nicholson's journalist character is cheating on her, much like Carl Bernstein did. Carl Bernstein. Whenever I'm thinking of Woodward and Bernstein, I always think of, yeah, Leonard Bernstein, of course. And I was like, no, that's not right. That's not right. R.E.M. doesn't care about Carl. But Heartburn's pretty good as well. I remember, this is completely pointless, and I can already sense this episode going off the rails, but we had a VHS of some other movie where we had paused the recording to keep the commercials out, and I got a little snippet in that same VHS, and it was a airing a tv airing of heartburn but i never found out what the name of the movie was i just saw jack nicholson meryl streep and they're married and it took me literally 20 years to find out what that movie was like the creation of the internet and me having a sudden memory of like what's that movie 
And then I finally watched it after that through Netflix. And it was pretty good. It was all right. Isn't that interesting? Isn't that more interesting than talking about the movie at hand? <sighs> all that to say, I like Nora Ephron. Brief appearance by Rita Wilson, actual wife of Tom Hanks. Playing his sister. Kinky. Was she playing his sister? I didn't gather. I, I, think I knew so. they were like friends, but that makes sense. A sister who has the same haircut as his girlfriend. As his girlfriend? Yeah, that's the whole plot point is, is a very minor plot point. But when Meg Ryan sees them hanging out, she thinks that's the woman from her private eye that she hired to follow oh. Sam around. She thought it was the same woman. She was matching hairstyles back to back. And when she saw Jonah hugging this that. woman, he's like, oh my God, they're a happy family. I can't interrupt their lives with my stalking and meddling. I didn't connect that. I just thought, this is a woman. He's warm towards this woman. And she wasn't with her husband. All right. No. no. I mean, it's not a huge plot point. I can see how you missed it, but still. Yeah. Instead, she decided to stand in the middle of the road <laughs> and get hit. Not by one, or almost hit by not one, but two different vehicles. Oh my God. Yeah. She almost got pet cemetery twice. <laughs> I will say the entire time I was watching this movie, I was reminded of one of my favorite onion headlines, which is rom-com behavior gets real life man arrested. This yeah. whole movie Meg Ryan is acting problematically. I'll say that. I was going to say crazy, and I felt that was loaded, so I'm going to say problematically, which is a that word is. that is starting to lose all meaning. But she hears about a man on the radio, uses her powers as journalist to find out his information, calls his home to get his last name, mm -hmm. starts doing microfiche nonsense uh, on him, hires a private investigator to take photos of him. Gets a flight to his hometown paid for by her editor friend to go investigate him further and then almost meets him at the Empire State Building. Goes well, to his does. house. Goes to his house, stands in the street. No, goes to his house, follows him when she finds out he's not at his house. He's on a boat. She yep. follows him in her, her car and meets him. Watches him the hang out with his child. Oh, my God. Some time. Haunting. That's, Lauren said, that's some real stalker behavior. And <laughs> she is Again, she has not met this man. She has only heard his voice on the radio while he's saying sort of bland things about his dead wife. Okay. I mean, right. I'm not, I'm not trying to be dickish, but when that scene when he's like on the phone is very charming for his interactions with his child, but not as charming when it's like, what did you love about your husband? Or what did you love about your wife? And he's like, how long of a show you got? And then he's just like, she made everything beautiful. I'm like, okay, who doesn't? <laughs> who doesn't? Well, Natasha or whatever the other lady's name, that's who. Victoria. Victoria. She, she laughed so much. I want to say this. As a person who does suffer from hyenic laughter, <laughs> I thought it was very grotesque the way this movie treats Victoria. She just is enjoying life and you can't help when the gags take you. What sound comes out of your mouth? This movie, which I don't think has like a strong point, but I do think it does a decent job of saying like, there's nothing wrong with, she doesn't turn out to be mean to Jonah or anything She doesn't like try that. to send have, him to boarding school like, like the yeah, parent they, trap. <laughs> I think it's kind of refreshing because basically in Tom Hanks, Sam does say that to Jonah. They like see her off at the airport, which whoo. Pre 9-11 airport scenes always, are always, always the head haunting, trip, right? Yeah. I'm like, oh, I thought that was a fever dream, but now it's depicted in fiction. You're just walking right up to the gate. You don't even have a fucking ticket. You're just wandering around, getting some Cinnabon, and seeing your girlfriend off. But she gets on the plane, and then 
Jonas kind of says something snotty to her. Like he actually doesn't, but he says it in a snotty yeah, way. He he's says a, like, he's yeah, she, she's like, I'll get you a snow globe. And he's like, yes, I would like that very much. <laughs> and then, which is, is great. I do like that exchange, by the way. He goes, he's eight. And she goes, he's good at it. <laughs> <laughs> I uh, like you're, that. you're right. I, I was sort of picking on it, but I think one of the more grown up aspects of this movie is that both Victoria and Walter are not treated as like sort of villains. Maybe Walter a little bit more than Victoria, but they're not treated as out and out villains. They're treated like nice people. They're just not the right people for the our, our heroes that we're looking to get to pound town. Yeah. And I can see they, they've both got like little. Walter just has allergies and thus should not be loved by anyone. Yeah, I feel a lot of sympathy for Walter as someone who with a million allergies to, uh-huh. to pets when someone like, meet my dog. I'm like, please, God, no. <laughs> Victoria, too, she doesn't do anything. She doesn't have the same kind of chemistry, you know, yeah. with with Sam. And she's got kind of an, a loud laugh. But she obviously finds Sam funny. She's, you know, there's there's like some, they, they like each other fine. And I like the discussion they have when Victoria gets on the plane. Sam says to Jonah, he's like, look, I don't know her very well. And that's why I'm dating her to try to get to know her. And what does he say? He says, she flips her hair a lot. Why does she do that? Does she have a head (laughs) tick? Does she need a barrette? These are things I'm looking to get to the bottom of. And that's why I'm dating her. So just calm down. I'm not marrying her necessarily. I'm not doing anything. She's not moving in. Calm down. It's a very charming interaction and explains dating on an eight-year-old's level. Yeah. I remember that scene also resonated with me in a different way when I was younger because having that sort of relationship with the like the step parent and being like, mm-hmm. it's, you know, trying to be like, calm down. It's not everything. But then when they do get married, you're like, you just said you didn't know. And then <laughs> you said you were going to break up with this person once you uh, decided <laughs> you promised you know, once me. you learn these things. I do want to talk about Tom Hanks and Jonah real quick. I feel like I'm getting softer in my old age where I feel like the last few movies we've had with kids in prominent roles, I've been like, this kid didn't bother me. This kid didn't bother me. Even though I I have, I feel like I want to have a reputation that I hate child actors, but I thought that Jonah did a great job in this. He's pretty good. He's supposed to be a snot, snotty brat, but like he's a good kid who's got bratty tendencies. Yeah. And he's precocious. His friend Jessica is even more precocious than him, but not in that rom-com way that I find obnoxious. They seem like genuine kids. The whole premise of the movie is that Jonah calls in without Sam knowing. He's out on the porch just like looking at the bay. And mm-hmm. thinking about his dad. Jonah wife. calls in. Yeah. And this whole family clearly needs therapy, like to work through this <laughs> awful thing that they have to go through. Radio-based therapy? Is that the best form of therapy? No, like actual (laughs) professional therapy together and separately. (laughs) At the very beginning of the movie, like, you know, he's lost his wife and Sam's at work and his boss or supervisor or whatever, like hands him a card for a therapist and he brings out a bunch of other ones. I've got like grief counseling. I'm like, you should seek help in all or any of these places. Right. Have you actually talked to any of these people or are you just collecting cards? I kind of understand you got to do it in your own time. This is an awful thing to deal with and everybody's got to figure it out. But I was a little worried at first because it was going to be too precocious and too cute. You know, that we set up this thing that like, this is the answer, but I don't think the movie, even though it is ridiculous in its own right, I don't think it's saying like, this is a good idea. It's just saying this romantic thing happens. You know what I mean? There was this Mm -hmm. chemistry because it's, I saw some sort of quote and I'm going to mess up the 
the exact words of it, but it was Nora Ephron talking about, she's like, I wanted it to sort of explore the crazy trope of people doing insane things for love, but then also make you think you should do those things. Right. So she like, said it was uh, exploring yeah. those crazy, those movies that made us crazy about love. But then I, in 20 years, I wanted you to think of this movie as another movie that made you think about love in a crazy way. Very much like George W. Bush, mission accomplished. <laughs> <laughs> I really liked Jonah and Tom Hanks's scenes together. They have a cute scene with their brushing teeth. I thought they just had a yeah. really good repartee back and forth. In fact, my Sally Field nomination is for them fighting before Jonah leaves for New York and before Tom Hanks is going to go on a proposed you know, vacation with Victoria. Uh, that never happens. They have this sort of back and forth, both of them running into their room and slamming the door, and then someone else says something through the door, which causes the other person to come out and yell at the other person again. It's a great scene. It's like funnily shot, and they both are able to hold their own against each other. And it almost like plays like a bickering couple more than like father and son. It's really cute. Tom Hanks tells Jonah to shut up, Jonah. And he's like, and he comes back out of his room. He's like, oh, shut up, shut up. It's really just a winning pair, those two. Just a winning pair. I feel like that is reinforced by later because Jonah runs away, gets a plane ticket to New York by himself. And then, of course, that sends Sam into a panic. He flies across country. And then when he meets back up with Jonah at the top of the Empire State Building, he's like, I didn't screw things up too much. You, know, you can tell like he's he's doing his best as a parent and it hot eyes literal tears <laughs> it's so i was like okay, we're okay we're doing yeah. okay aren't we it's such a sweet yeah. like genuine moment they they've really just i feel like it's a really good scene when he when he says we're doing okay aren't we and his his son's like yeah we're you're fine he's like i haven't screwed anything up he's like no you haven't it's so genuinely like if the movie ended there i'd be like that's fine yeah that's all right it felt i think it's weird yeah yeah I will second that for the uh, Sally Field single scene award, but I'm going to circle in my note. Oh, I have two other. I can see we can say these are second place or tied for second and third or whatever. Interesting. Go ahead. And they are both very similar in the sense that Annie and what is Rosie O'Donnell's character? I don't remember her name. Becky? Beck? No. Recky? No, that's not a name. Recky? Oh yeah, Recky. Don't come up with this. It's totally Becky. It's totally (laughs) Becky. You wanted so bad to correct me that you just made up a name. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Recky. No, it's Shamika, you fucking (laughs) Becky and Annie are sitting on the couch and they're watching the movie that the sort of meetup what is it called? Unfair to remember. remember. There's the movie that the the scene on meeting up on the Empire State Building is based on. They're like, they do like some back and forth and then they're watching it together and they just lip sync the whole scene together. That was great. And then later, Sam is sitting with Rita Wilson and her husband, Victor Garber. Mm-hmm. And they're sitting there and Rita's retelling the story of An Affair to Remember. And she just starts crying and she, and then they're sort of making fun of her later. And then they start retelling the story of Dirty Dozen. Yeah. And they're in Nazi uniforms. And they're like <laughs> just crying. That was very, very funny. And I like that because it also like cuts to Rita Wilson and she's laughing because she finds this funny as well. It's not like yes. being cruel or anything. Yeah. Those are great scenes as well. You're absolutely right. I don't want to talk about the bad things yet. I want to, I just have one note on this person. And I just wanted to bring her up because I'm scared I'm going to forget about her. Clarice. Do you remember Clarice? She's Jonah's babysitter 
I want to know everything about Clarice. She's like if what if Liza Minnelli was a Wiccan? That's how she dresses and looks. She's like a stoner. She's like what? Like several times. And when they're like looking for Jonah when he goes missing, she like walks around the corner. She's just like, as Tom is screaming, Jonah, she goes, Jonah, like practically to herself. About her, yeah. I want a spinoff sitcom. (laughs) I want. When she walked up, I was like, "What is Clarice's fucking deal? What's going on?" And also, there's a when before he goes on his date. He's like fretting. He's having like a complete breakdown about how he looks and all this stuff. And Clarice is not responding anyway. She's just watching TV with Joan on the couch and eating popcorn. And she responds to no questions. She responds to nothing that's happening around her. I love her. She's just like a piece of furniture that's just there. Well decorated, very brightly colored. She's great. I wanted to know everything about her. I wanted her to be my best friend. Maybe (laughs) she could be my date to the prom because, you know... Because I'm a fag and I'm not going to the prom with a boy. Not in 1992. Speaking of Bill Pullman's character being annoying, his Lou Gehrig impersonation at the dinner table. So he tell they tell her whole family that they're engaged, and then he does. And he hasn't met today, them yet. today, today. Oh, I'm, I'm sorry, the luckiest I'm man. <laughs> he does the man, man, does man in the old world, world, world. It's very charming, and but no one responds to it. No one gets it. And also, well, and then they explain it. They're like, it's Luke Eric. And they're like, oh, yes. Historical reference, someone says. (laughs) (laughs) I really like that. I really like someone saying historical reference. Yes. I also like that same guy, after Bill Pullman mentioned that he's allergic to so many things, that same guy is like, I'm allergic to bees. And Francis Conroy, who's his wife, is like, he is allergic to every kind of bee. And then later they're making uh, assumptions of, oh, you should get married in the, in the summer and out in the floral fields. And the guy goes, the bees. And someone said, what about Harold and the bees? <laughs> <laughs> Deranged. But Bill Pullman, I feel like of the two, of Victoria and Pullman, as I alluded to, I feel like he gets the sheer end of the stick. He's sort of played for laughs. He gets more scenes, too. She might have been more annoying. Right. She was but, like, he's allergic to everything, which sort of treated like his fault. <laughs> like, it's almost, yeah. it's like almost just like her hyena laugh represent, like, it's supposed to be representative of every way she's not compatible with Dom Hanks. It's sort of be like, see, it's not going to quite work. His, like, allergies are the problem. And the movie sort of deals with it. Like, if he eats a little bit of a nut, he will, his head will expand and he'll die. He can't eat wheat. He can't eat strawberries. He's a mess. He has this humidifier that he's always filling. They have this funny moment where they're both in bed, Meg Ryan, or they're getting ready for bed, and they're sort of handing things to each other. They're almost the opposite in that they they work almost synchronized in a kind of not charming way. Somehow, I mean, the movie does a good job of making it seem lame that they're so synchronized. She's handing him water for his humidifier. She hands him handkerchiefs before he needs them. They sort of finish each other's sentences, but it's not romantic. It's not sexy. It's just like, you guys may suck together. But yeah, I felt bad for him. If there was a gay romantic comedy, I would be the Bill Pullman and Dan Levy would leave me for Lee Pace or whatever. Yeah. Just because he's tall and handsome and I'm like this. Gotta be honest, that's kind of a, that's a move up. It's an no, up, I mean, it's a I, rung I, up on I, the ladder. Unlike Bull Pullman, I would be angry in the moment and then afterwards <laughs> I'd be like, what? A, I would have done the same thing. What's, what's wrong with him? And then you'd be like, go to him. 
the Victoria thing makes sense. We don't even actually see her her discussion. Yeah, we don't see Hanks. the breakup. Yeah. Well, because as far as Tom Hanks knows, he's that he's not breaking up with them with her. There's nothing to he's do. Just, he's just going to New York to. There's a presumed breakup in the future after the credits roll. Yeah. But Bill Pullman's breakup scene is ludicrous. Because <laughs> as the whole movie has spent, Meg Ryan, who I, I will get to, has spent the whole movie thinking that her parasocial relationship with Tom Hanks's character, to borrow in the parlance of our time, is just this sort of projection of her own cold feet of getting married. And that's all it is. And she just needs to work through her work it through her system and she's gonna be fine. And you know, she keeps talking to Bill Pullman and she's like, You ever you ever been nervous, you know, about, you know, forever? And he's like, nah. Like he's <laughs> obviously in love with her. Like he loves right. her. And he always, you know, when she, when she keeps putting all these barriers between them, uh, he's like, oh, but you'll be gone when I get back. And she's like, hey, yeah, we'll see each other in New York. So it'll be great. Like, it's obvious that he's crazy about her. And the idea that he has this sort of go to her moment or go to him moment is deranged to me. I mean, I, he takes it like a mensch. And I appreciate that because at that point in the movie, you don't need another obstacle or be reminded how terrible she's treating this man who loves her. But it's still always this weird thing to me. I'm like, I don't want to watch. This is this is ludicrous. I don't disagree with you, but the only thing is like he knows. Like he has he mentions yeah. whatever's been going on the last couple of months and he doesn't know what it is and he's kind of assuming the best of her. He doesn't assume that she fucking hired a private detective to <laughs> stalk another man she flew to seattle you know that she he's not assuming all these terrible things that she's done and he but he knows that something's been amiss with her because she's been acting fucking weird and he's like i'm glad that you're kind of back because she's been sort of feeling better again so that's the only kind of point in the movie's favor as i can give is like he does know something up so this kind of revelation when she's like, I have to tell you something because she sees the Empire State Building and then tells him the whole thing. And we see we don't see her explain the whole thing. We just see his reaction to it, which I don't think it's a huge surprise. I think the whole story, he wouldn't know it. But the fact that she's breaking up with him, basically, or should be breaking up with him is not a surprise to him because he's he's not an idiot. He's just a doofus. You know what I mean? Like he's a goober. He knows something's wrong. He knows she doesn't feel the same way about it. And this is his confirmation. I do think it's very wild the the way he reacts, but the movie gives him a, just a lot of credit of like figuring it out and being like, well, I don't want to be anybody's second choice, Yeah, but he's not mad about it. I think he should be. He a should bit be mad furious about it. about it. He just had his, his grandmother's <laughs> ring resized. He was just yeah. you know, getting plates, all this stuff they've gone through for this wedding, not to mention just even getting into the psychological space of like getting ready to get married. He's done the work DJ again, in the parlance of our time. And she's like off bebopping and scatting all over him. Yeah, I agree. I'm just I'm just saying that I'm going to give a 20% credit to the movie for kind of setting him up as... I understand why the movie has to sort of to do it, but it's not that I'm not bothered that he's aware of it. I think he still loves her. I yeah. think it makes sense that he's aware of it. The fact that he's so chill about it, vibes only on the breakup thing, is deranged to me. Yeah, he should be incensed. But I think then I feel like he would tip over unfairly. But I feel like most audiences would view him as a villain then, and they that's also not that fair. At that point, him. at that point in the movie too, it's like, all right, let's get. But to it that. feels very. I don't know. This movie walks a very fine line of 
this sort of magical realism or this magical thinking, this very arch like romantic idea, which sounds like from what you were telling me about the pre-production, the history of like how the script sort of bounced around makes sense, which might be the piece, the pre-Ephron piece, BN, I call it. And then the sort of Seinfeldian, like bantery, what if there's just a bunch of cool people hanging out in various cities across this great nation of ours? And, (laughs) you know, they just seem like cool people that you'd want to, you know, get a drink with or get a coffee with. That part feels very Ephron, but his breakup part feels part of the old script where it's like, look, we just need this to happen so we can get our two most hot leads to boingy boingy. Go to him. (laughs) That is one of my favorite. I think we probably mentioned this in the intro, but that's one of my favorite romantic movie tripes. The the very tripes, tropes, the very idea (laughs) that someone's currently being broken up with and it's news to them, at least to some degree. And all of a sudden they're on team, the other couple. It's very much in line with just the general romantic comedy thing where like people exist in this entire universe to make this romance happen. Best friends are only there. The Rosie O'Donnell, Becky are only there Recky, to make this Recky. romance. Recky are only there to make this romance happen. You know, they don't have lives of, or wants or needs of their own. They're not three dimensional. They just, they love love so much that this has got to happen. Well, you're saying this about romantic comedies, but I would say it's not untrue about this movie as well. I mean, we are saying that about Bill Pullman, but it also feels true about a lot of people in this movie. Yes, I agree. Where even, I mean, Rosie O'Donnell feels like this, where she's just sort of there to have meetings so that Meg Ryan can interrupt them and talk about her problems. David, I I will say another thing, like in the same vein, this is a very flabby picture, I feel like, cast-wise. Feels like there's a lot of people in here, and I don't know why they're all in it. David Hyde Pierce, like, really has the, where she's announcing that she's getting engaged to her family scene, and then later he has this one scene in his office at Johns Hopkins where he's, I assume, a music professor, but he's talking very psychologically about everything, and it really confused me because he's holding a conductor's baton. He has a harp and a piano in his office, but he's talking about neuroses and a lot of like psychological terms. Doctors, a doctor's a doctor. Okay, of course, he can also John- perform open heart surgery. Johns Hopkins is famous for its classical music program. Everybody knows that. <laughs> That's why I got, during COVID, I got a newsletter from Johns Hopkins about their heart program. (laughs) I don't know, but it feels like, my theory on rom-coms has always been like, we know where this is going. We know what's going to happen. It all is reliant on the chemistry of the characters they're in. I'm not there to see a groundbreaking you know, plot that has twists and turns I don't see coming. If that happens, that can rarely happen with a rom-com. I think of like things like My Best Friend's Wedding, where it's sort of upending the tropes of of rom-coms. But oftentimes you're just there to watch hottest man actor meet hottest woman actor and they, you know, eventually get together. And it's all about the chemistry of those two leads. And if the chemistry isn't working, you're like, this is bullshit. I don't believe that Kate Beckinsale actually wants to get with John Cusack because their name was in a book 10 years ago. Get out of here, serendipity, (laughs) you son of a bitch. But in a movie like this, where I feel like everyone is very charming and winning, I'm like, yeah, this makes sense that this would all sort of just kind of work out somehow. 
I'm sort of getting in a roundabout way to talking about how charming Meg Ryan is. Would you like to take the baton on that? Unless you hated her, and then I don't want you no, to speak. Incredibly charming. In the first, when one of the first scenes where she's driving, <laughs> where she originally <laughs> hears the radio program, she's in the car singing along to Christmas carols. Yeah, Dale Evans and it's Roy Rogers or something. Uh-huh. It's like a the mu- I want to talk about the music too, but and she's she, you know, she I I very much like she focused on a zeroed in like a very specific part of the song and keeps singing that, which is horse. something I would, someone says horses, horse. horses, horses. She just keeps <laughs> doing it. The song is over. She changes the station. She's like not she's like singing along, she loves it. She moves changes the station anyway, and then still goes, horses, horses, horses. <laughs> It's very charming. And even while she's doing kind of more and more chaotic and downright wrong things, (laughs) she's still very charming. She's very, she's a, you know, she's a Fliberty gibbet, but also not in a super spacey way. She's just kind of, she's very not unsure. She's very unsure about this relationship, about this being marriage, but she can't like admit it to herself. So it's kind of like she's self-sabotaging, but also she really does have some sort of connection, obviously. The movie does a great job of never having her say that she does not like Walter, but it's so she obvious says the opposite. she just doesn't like Well, She's constantly yeah. talking about how in love with Walter she is. She never explicitly yeah. says until she actually breaks up with him that they shouldn't be together. But she does a great job. She's like, oh, he said something so funny the other day. Oh, what, what was it? Was it? Oh, <laughs> it was just, we were just laughing. And then later on, Rosie O'Donnell's character wakes her, calls her, wakes her up in the middle of the night because Jonah has recalled into the Dr. Marsha show. Rosie O'Donnell's like, you got me to listen to this stuff now. You got to listen to this because Sam is on a date and Jonah had called in. But she, after she, you know, after Bill Pullman like comes into the kitchen to see what she's doing, she lies and says, oh, well, you know, Becky, you know, she's been having some trouble with Rick and, you know, I'm just so happy my life's settled. And, and yeah. it's such bullshit, but it's such a funny line to me. I love her because it's such a nonsense yeah. line. Like no one would actually say that out loud. Oh, I'm just so happy my life's settled. Deranged. Yeah. And, and did you have more about her or just that kind of her general? I will say Mullen minor criticism. And I don't think this is on Meg Ryan's part because I think she really makes Annie really charming. But I feel like we learn a lot about Annie outside of Annie actually like exhibiting things. Like for example, at one point, Annie writes a letter to Sam that she does not intend to send. And Rosie turns out sends it. And when Jonah gets it, he has Tom Hanks read it. And Annie in the letter had mentioned a baseball player that she really loved. And I was like, at first, like I was really confused because yeah. I was like, "Is this the Annie that we've been talking about?" Because I, yeah. I didn't know anything about Annie being into baseball. I guess kind of the Lou Gehrig thing, but that also feels like an old movies thing rather than a baseball right. explicit thing. So it just felt like apparently there's other parts of Annie's personality that we can get. I never got the impression that she was a big baseball fan or or sports person. And I wish there was. I think we got a lot of like Annie's personality, and maybe that's really all you need. But when we got that letter, it felt very. I was confused for a minute. I was like, is this someone else's letter? There are a lot of like little things that in this movie that I have never noticed before until rewatching it this time. And I think they're, they're very purposeful things in the movie. But for example, we see at one point when she's actually re-listening, you know, after Rosie O'Donnell called her to wake her up to listen to the radio show, Annie starts peeling an apple. She's doing it with like just a paring knife and she's just going around the apple. Later on, I think maybe even the next scene, 
Tom Hanks, Jonah was having a bad dream and he starts talking about his mom and says something heart-wrenching, which is, I'm starting to forget her, which is something that I remember feeling about my grandparents. I was like, I'm starting to forget things about them. Don't get hot eyes now. We're doing a podcast, damn it. <laughs> but Tom Hanks says, you know, he says Step one of those, of those very idiosyncratic things you might have about your partner. He's like, she could peel an apple in one long string which is something we just saw Annie doing. And there's a lot of parallels like that. That one's the most obvious, but we also have both Annie and Jonah have trouble sleeping the same night. We have, they both have friends that send letters without them knowing. Rosie O'Donnell sends the letter without them knowing. Uh, Jonah responds to Annie's letter without Sam knowing. Of course, they have the affair to remember. Both of them have connections to this movie and affair to remember. We also have the same statistic about older women meeting the loves of their life. We both get a very similar conversation with Meg Ryan and Rosie O'Donnell talking to two co-workers in the newsroom. And then we get Rita Wilson almost making the exact same point to Victor Garber and Tom Hanks. Like that is a faked statistic. That's not true what you're saying. There's all these little, little moments that I think are really good at paralleling these two people. Yeah. I thought it was just like, good i mean i don't know who originally did all that but it's good writing directing it's just a good way to kind of that's a thing like your final edit does i feel like <laughs> or your final draft or whatever does you kind of find these ways of weaving things together that just makes it a cohesive story and kind of wraps everything up oh the butts men's butts the waitresses when annie stops in the diner when she first hears Dr. Marsh's episode, the two waitresses working in that diner are talking about men's butts. Later on, Rob Reiner is talking to Tom Hanks about what dating is like in the 90s. And he's like, all women just want a guy with a cute butt. And he's like, where did I hear that before? And he's like, you hear it everywhere. Also, Rob Reiner, who's sort of like in director mode, I forget how actually charming he is as an actor. He's really funny. His One of my favorite lines is from this. He's talking about what dating is like. Another scene where Sam just gets a giant plate of clams. <laughs> but, uh, i remember seeing it because at first it would, there was a bowl over the clams and i was like that's a really fucking big burger yeah and then rob reiner's like you call her up say we'll look at swatches <laughs> and then they go talking about swatches together like, you, well, you don't do it like me you do it you do it suave you know you do it like Cary grant and he's like you think that Cary grant would would call a woman up to to get swatches and he's like yeah darling come over here and look at swatches <laughs> it's very good yeah, that was the part that reminded me very much like Seinfeld. There's a lot of moments in here that just feels like single people complaining about dating, which is very much in my alley for, for Seinfeld. Yeah. Not as cynical as Seinfeld, but in that same like vein. In fact, they also reference the soup Nazi before Seinfeld does. I saw There's the, a guy in New York selling yeah. soup, and he's the meanest guy you'll ever meet, but it's the best soup you'll ever have. How good could this soup be? I don't know. I'm you not know? a big soup guy. Although it is, it's, it's, it's good. You know, we have seven inches of snow it's right now, so I might become a soup a season snoop, for snoop sure. Guy, <laughs> you need a. I've got a new idea for the new. Now that he's off the weed, Snoop soups. Snoop, do we're it. doing soups now. Yes, you can involve Martha. I don't have like a ton to say about Tom Hanks' character because we kind of talked over it, about it. I think, but I do want to point out that this movie does not know what an architect does <laughs> because he is an architect. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, I'm sure there's people that do both, but generally speaking, an architect will do the drawings, the drafts of, of a plan. They won't have not little models in their house. 
<laughs> goes on site and making decisions and measuring. T- I mean, I'm sure they can. I'm sure there are contractors who are architects and vice versa. But it was like, are you a, a general contractor or are you a architect? Well, it is, as you alluded to, it is one of those jobs that just shows up in rom-coms, much like a magazine editor uh, is a big one. Um, journalist doesn't exist. Journal. These aren't real jobs, people. But yeah, <laughs> I did see that he had a he had of course a draftsman's table in his home and models of homes as well, like structures he had built for those purposes as well. And I was like, wow, really taking his work home with him on the boat or whatever it is. I like Tom Hanks a lot. I mean, we talked about him with Jonah. I think those are his really stellar scenes. But just in general, he's fantastic in this. He He's a little bit more neurotic in this, which I appreciate. You know, him talking about uh, when goddess among us Clarice is watching Geraldo with, with Jonah. He's like, here's a bottle of Ipecac in case you either of you drinks any poison. And just running all over. He's like, no, I look stupid. I look stupid in this blazer. He's great. Tom Hanks. Our generation's Jimmy Stewart. Am I the first to say it? This is not the first time you've said it. That's for sure. So this level, Meg Ryan's at like a 10 out of 10 90s hotness in this. Where would you rank, for me, at least certainly at the time, where would we rank Hanks? Because he's more of a charmer. In the range of his own hotness or in the range of hotness all over the place? Okay, Hotness, but... Given the context of Home Field Advantage, Tom Hanks' yes. hotness. His hair's a bit speaking of Seinfeld, his hair is getting a little out of control here. It is a little bit of the the Jerry Mullet going on. But you know, he's got that sort of live body. He always just sort of feels like he moves around like one of those car salesman inflatable things. He was recording the voice for Woody at the same time. <laughs> As he was filming this movie. He doesn't have elbows. They're just sewn. They're just sewn shut. They're just hems in his elbows. So his arm can bend either way. It's disturbing when you see it in action. That first scene when they go down to uh, Pike Place Market, and he he lost his footing at one point in one of the bloopers, and he's just arms and legs going everywhere. That's dumb. That's a dumb. It's physical. It doesn't work on the podcast. I mean, yeah, he's all right. I mean, I've never been into Tom Hanks, but you know who was into Tom Hanks? Have I ever shared this story on the podcast? It's not my story to share. So okay. <laughs> I'm going to land it there. <laughs> my friend Bethany, she is very attracted to Tom Hanks. And one time she was watching a Barbara Walters interview as a child with Tom Hanks. And Barbara said to Tom, You're not a very attractive man. And Tom Hanks, of course, was able to handle the question with his usual charm. Bethany held a grudge against Barbara Walters to the end of her days. Bethany's still with us, but Barbara ain't. And is that true? Yeah. And Bethany so murdered her. Bethany that won saying? that one. Allegedly. <laughs> Same thing with uh, Steve Martin. Bethany had to think for Steve Martin. Oh, okay. I thought Beth- I thought you were going to say Steve Martin had a grudge against Barbara Walters. <laughs> I didn't hear about that. He and uh, Steve Martin and Bethany conspired together to end Barbara Walters' life. Allegedly. No one wants to hear me talk at length about it, but I just want to say Oh, God. I got to give props to the music in this movie because mm-hmm. I think the score is fine. Mark Shaman, good job. Hairspray is great. The score is fine. And in fact, oh, it's good. Oh, yeah, you learned good. Hairspray. I forgot that that year one month that you spent learning the entire parts of Hairspray. And I was, we shared a wall in our little house. And I remember I learned the entire well. show for an audition that I didn't get. Being a musician is fun. Anyway. <laughs> Well, you have to learn it now for the audition because we don't have time to learn it on the show. 
No, I can't just learn a song and show you that I can do it. <laughs> so the needle drops, though, like music supervision in this, and I should have gotten the credit. This also feels that. very nor. For some reason, I also associate like jazz and pop, like these pop standards, like with Nora Ephron movies. I don't know if it's just this one, but I feel like it's also in You've Got Mail. I feel like it mm. might also be in When Harry Met Sally. I feel like it's might very be. of a piece of Nora Ephron movies. It's very quirky, though, too, because there's a lot of country songs in there. There's Stand By Your Man, which right. we sang. Also, Back in the Saddle. I'm back in the saddle oh, yeah. again. I thought that was great because they could have dropped Aerosmith. I believe that was out at this time. But they, uh, I'm back in the cell again. (laughs) Okay. And they went for Gene Autry or whatever it is. The uh, version of Jingle Bell's Sleigh Ride is also in that sort of realm. Was it Ray Charles? There was a Ray Charles song on here. Yeah, there's Ray Charles and a version of Somewhere Over the Rainbow. There's Joe Cocker singing Bye Bye Blackbird. They had just, in the scene before, Mm -hmm. Jonah was talking about how she used to sing, his mom used to sing to him and Sam was like, yeah, bye bye Blackbird. They don't play the song then, but right coming out of that scene, they sing, they play Joe Cocker's version of it. And it was, it was good. It's just well done. Well, music supervised, well scored. Just want to point that out. That's it. You want to do some quotes? I do. Before we get into quotes, I want to say one thing, because I've criticized some stuff. I just want to say there are two like major trip up. One is a minor trip up where it just, I think I would have eliminated the prologue where we're in Chicago with Jonah and Sam. I forgot it happened. And we're the, the movie opens on Maggie, Sam's wife's funeral. Beautiful plot with a view of Chicago. That had to cost a pretty penny. And then we actually, we have another scene, which that scene might've been fine with an establishing, but then we get like a scene in Sam's office where his supervisor, like you said, brings the, the therapy cards. And then he's like, I'm moving to Seattle. And it's like, I mean, you can just start the movie in Seattle. I mean, everything else is can either be extrapolated or is said in the call with Dr. Marsha. It just seemed very like, redundant and it's a very minor quibble but it it, it's one of those movies that uh, we've talked about this a thousand times i've seen the last two-thirds of this movie 600 times and this may have been the first time i've seen the opening credits of sleepless in seattle Uh, i've seen it so many times and i was like oh i didn't know the funerals in the movie it just seems like a weird way to set tone for this very specific type of movie the other thing is i think we alluded to this but the g- 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 ghost that is in the m- the middle of the first act of this Zoinks. movie. Oh, we like we got a ghost, Scoob. <laughs> uh, it is deranged that Carrie Lowell shows up as her dead self in one scene. One scene. She just shows up as a spirit. Now, I will have, uh, there is a silver lining to this, and it sort of ties into Jonah later saying, I'm starting to forget her. She can't remember her own phrase that she used to say. She she asked to borrow if she could have a sip of Tom Hanks's beer that he just opened. And she's like, what did I used to say? Here's looking at you or mud in your eye. Or, and he's like, yeah, I can't even remember what the actual phrase, but it to was us. a weird. It was a fun note that she he might also be forgetting her slightly. Yeah. That yeah. he can't remember what she used to say. But again, I forget that her ghost is in this movie. And just for one scene, it's not a motif. It's not a recurring thing. It's so, such a wild thing to include very briefly. There is a magical element to this movie, as we talked about, but that seemed like, this isn't this movie, movie. You, This isn't your tone. 
I guess it didn't bother me that much because it's clearly not an act. It's not trying to claim it's an actual ghost or her spirit. It's like clearly his memory of her because of what you pointed out. And so it it just seemed like a a beat. It I I agree. It doesn't need to be there necessarily, but it didn't like take me out of it the same way. I think I just always memory hole that part of this movie that her ghost shows up just for a brief pop in. Just checking in on you guys. Just was wandering around the ethereal plane and, you know, pushing a boulder up a hill. And I just thought I'd pop into your houseboat <laughs> and have a sip of IPA with you. I thought it was a little too much when they, they show her. And like she's no, you can no longer see her, but they, you see Tom Hanks belt come undone. And then it just shows his eyes crossing. <laughs> like she's filleting him. Uh, another sour scene in a different movie I enjoy. What the fuck, Ghostbusters? <laughs> oh, yeah, just real quick. What do you think about the amount of time that Tom Hanks and Meg Ryan actually have on screen together? Because it's like four seconds. You know, I mean, that might be the trickiest thing of this movie. I think the fact that Tom Hanks sees her at the airport without her seeing him, I don't want to say it completely rectifies the kind of sticky wicket in this movie but it does go a long way in that he also like almost starts to form a parasocial relationship with her and he's like sort of following her around the airport and he loses track of her because there's a marching band in town or whatever and then he sees her again on the street so it's not a complete stranger thing and then when he sees her of course he'd be like who is this woman that I keep running into on various coasts of our country? There is a lot of charm going on. And I feel like, of course, that's the movie, like getting us into the mode of wanting these two to get together. But it's almost like a cathartic thing when you actually see them together. I think that the movie is effective in that regard. And that I think it's, oh great. yeah, finally, these two can hold yeah. hands. I think it's a great and unexpected way to do it. Like you're always, there's always like the trope is like the whole movie is keeping these two apart and then they finally get together. So that's still part of this fabric of this movie, but the fact that they actually don't interact really. Yes. I was about to say that being said, it is a little creepy that they just sort of stare at each other. They don't, I wish she had like made him laugh or did something like funny that, or we sort of like the music swells and we can no longer hear their dialogue and we just sort of see them like, you know, like the threes company opening credits or something where they're just laughing and riding bikes. But instead it's just them staring at each other. And it's a call back to her mom, like in the attic saying, I just knew. And I looked down at our hands and I couldn't tell which fingers were his and which were mine, but it still feels weird in the moment. We get a little bit, we get of her being charming with Jonah because yeah. she's like, who's this? So oh, this is whatever the elephant's name is or, or the bear's name. I don't know why I thought it was an elephant. Pokey. Pokey from uh, Hudson Hawk. That's what it is. That's that kooky little elephant. It's all coming. <laughs> There's also like at, at the beginning of the movie when Sam is being kind of more, he's grieving. I wanted to say mopey, but that's sort of <laughs> rude. Like, he, he's grieving. And he says it, you know, they're talking about you'll meet someone. And he's like, the kind of romance that I have, it doesn't happen twice. Mm-hmm. I think that's a good line. Yeah. He is depressed. He's upset. And it hasn't really been that long in the grand scheme of things. It's been like a year and a half. And it sounds like it was like a long illness, too. It sounds yeah. like they were dealing with that for a long time. He seems pretty like he needs to probably seek treatment. And he probably should take Jonah too. take one um, of those cards. Just one of those cards. Just one of them. Give him a try at least. But he has a D 
decent perspective on it. He's like, I'm just going to get up every day and take care of my son basically and try to move on. But I'm not expecting this to happen because I think I'm lucky for it to have happened again. And so I guess that's what I'm saying. The movie is maybe trying to just, he's in awe that he found it again, but it's like, you haven't talked to this woman at all. (laughs) That's a romantic comedy trope where we're just Mm -hmm. like, yeah, obviously they're going to be, they're going to go to dinner. Any, a number of the overpriced touristy restaurants around the empire state building. (laughs) Yeah. What are we eating at the I Love New York Cafe? Jesus Christ. Just take your bag at the M&M store, fill up <laughs> your bag, fill up her bag. That's $150. Isn't that insane? <laughs> what about Harold and Bees? I swear to say that again. <laughs> He's allergic to every kind of bee. Francis Conroy is so perfect as New England woman. Do you want to do quotes? All right, this is the one I texted you because this is my nominee for the Catherine O'Hara MVP, Memorial MVP Award. 90s Rosie O'Donnell, inject it into my veins, please. I want it. I love it. So the letters, Rosie O'Donnell sent Annie's letter without telling Annie. Jonah responded to said letter without telling Sam. And so they get this letter back under the guise that it's been written by Sam, but it's obviously been written by a child. <laughs> and it says, hey, Annie, I got your letter. You sound neat. And all these just like childlike phrases. And let's meet at the Empire State Building and see if we're M-F-E. Oh. Oh, M-F-E-O. And Rosie Donald's like, M-F-E-O. And <laughs> Annie, I'm almost embarrassed that she knows what it is. She's like made for each other. And Rosie O'Donnell makes this perfect face and she goes, it's cute. It's like a little clue. (laughs) (laughs) And I laughed and laughed and laughed. She's a very charming woman. What about you, Deej? When Annie is listening to the radio show and Dr. Marsha makes, she does something. She makes Sam come to the phone or something. She goes, wretched woman. (laughs) (laughs) She has a lot of great moments on that call. And another, this is probably their first Sam interaction despite being a thousand miles apart. Dr. Marsha says, now I don't want to pry, I don't want to get too personal here. And Sam and Annie both simultaneously, oh no, of course you do. (laughs) Also, I want to point out that when Sam's on the phone with her and he's like, should I call you Dr. Fieldstone or should I call you Marsha? And she goes, Dr. Marsha. (laughs) And Annie like rolls her eyes. It's like, this is so cheesy. And he's like, Doctor of what? Her na- her first name could be Doctor. It's <laughs> very good. You got more? I do. Jonah at one point is explaining to him a theory that had Jess had worked over, which was that Annie and Sam had been unrequited lovers in a previous life. And because they had never requited their love, now that's why they are sort of circling each other's lives. And Jonah says, and the reason I know this is because I'm younger and more pure. <laughs> And it's also funny because at that point, Sam is chasing or not sort of following Annie through the airport. So he's not fully listening to what his son is saying, which is absolute nonsense. Another good Jonah line when it's Victoria, the yeah. the girl, the or girlfriend. Ricky, uh, I can't remember. Victoria. <laughs> Jonah's being an ass and like going to bed after dinner and says, thanks for dinner. I've never seen potatoes cooked that way. <laughs> and Tom Hanks rolls with it and says, well, yeah, we don't see many. We're potatoes. rice family. We're, we're rice. We're rice men. Good. Jonah also, I mean, this, this is a problematic quote, but he says when he screams, 
He has Dr. Marsh on the phone the second time, and he says, my dad's been captured by a hoe. But later on, Annie references that line and calls her a hoe as well. And he's like, and she goes, she didn't look like a hoe. She looked actually <laughs> like she'd be one of our friends. But I, I was surprised. I was like, had hoe like integrated into common vernacular at this point? Yeah. Oh, yeah. We were well into hoe territory. Big into hoes. That actually tracks with what I remember of middle school. Yeah, we were saying ho. That's all the quotes I've got. Oh, I do want to point out Jonah has a Lego pirate ship that I also had when I was a kid. Red and white striped sails. Pretty awesome. Run by Captain Redbeard and his dastardly pirates. Even when I was a kid, Captain Redbeard was the true anti-hero of my Lego universe. And it was the governor and all the Spanish battalions, the colonizers that were the problem. Were he portraying Eric the Red or his son, Leif Erikson? No, these are just, instead of Captain Blackbeard, the pirate, it was Captain Redbeard. Needed a Redbeard. Let's go to the verdict. Please. I thought that would be more engaging, this fun Lego story, but I guess not. Movie Sleepless in Seattle, nineteen ninety two. Nora, Nora Ephron. Ninety three. Your nineteen ninety three. Nora Ephron. Director's Guild of America. Your <laughs> inner child is not an idiot. This movie's great. It's not perfect. I think there's a lot of funny. I laughed a lot more than I was expecting to. I was expecting to be mildly charmed, and I think I was high to moderately charmed. Did you feel the need to maybe call the police because a charm bomb was about to explode? Yeah, yeah. I think there are some <laughs> problematic elements to the way that Annie behaves. I some. Do think mm-hmm. some, some problems. It worked out, so I guess the ends justify the means, and that's never <laughs> been a problem in history. It was great. We got what I we wanna... wanted, didn't we? Yeah, so what's the problem? She manifested her destiny. And she got what she wanted. Don't worry about how she got it. (laughs) When has manifesting any destiny ever been a problem? (laughs) I agree with you that the child acting, I can't remember his name, but the kid who plays Jonah is great. And their chemistry as father-son was great. And this is uh, peak era, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks. I think they're great. Ross Mallinger is who played Jonah. We haven't said his actual name, and I wanted to point that out. He apparently quit acting. He's now a car salesman. Good for you. Get your child actor money and then get out. (laughs) Did I mention in the intro that he's also on an episode of Seinfeld where he is a Jewish kid getting his bar mitzvah, and he renounces his religion after Elaine tells him just because he had a bar mitzvah, he's not actually yet a man? Mm. It's a great episode. I do remember that episode, though. It's the Schick's Appeal episode for those at home. Damon, what's your verdict? Hi, thank you. I am a little bit more torn. I feel like in a lesser film, we would have picked apart the very problematic elements of Annie's troublesome meddling and stalking. I think it is buoyed by Meg Ryan being overwhelmingly charming, radioactively charming. She also is aware that she is being problematic. She knows that she shouldn't be doing what she's doing, but I can't wait for her to explain that to Sam and Jonah over dinner in the Empire State Building area. She's done. What is that, Midtown? But yeah, I cannot resist the charms of this movie. There are problems. There are logical leaps. There's Bill Pullman just being like, yeah, I get it. Go get him. But 
as I said earlier, rom-coms live and die by the chemistry between all of its stars, and I think this movie has plenty of chemistry, maybe a little too flabby on the cast, maybe a little too flabby on the prologue and stuff, but I can't fault it. It's a great movie. A good movie. I'll say that. I won't say a great movie, but it's a good movie. Your inner child is not an idiot. What do you think, everybody? Email us, yourinnerchildsanidiot at gmail.com, or you can text us or leave us a voicemail, 615-576-0525. I want to thank our friend Russ Weaver for the use of his song, Top of Two, for ad music. And if you want to support the show, go to patreon.com slash yourinnerchildsanidiot. And we want to thank our current patrons, including... Just Cause... Lindsay Halleck. Scalphosaurus. Heather Tuggle. Bill Haynes. Shit on the cartouche. The elusive fan Gromkin. Damon's Australian accent. Too real. Zachary Hartley. The Hands of Fate. Captain Sean Luke Picard. Jonathan Day. Lindsay Now. T. Smith. David Mort. Larissa Maestro. Uh, hmm. Mm, Dr. Malcolm's, um, yes, heaving bosom. His honor, the mayor. Jeremy Powlin. Jackson has an unhealthy obsession with Damon. James Taylor going to Carolina. <laughs> the zesty. Karen Curd. Particle man. The supreme ruler of this podcast. I'm still thinking about we. the only place we know that James Taylor doesn't live. <laughs> It's Carolina. it's Carolina, one of the the two Carolinas, because <laughs> he's Sir, it's always in his mind. Beth Sermont, Travis Vance, Caroline Amberson, Tommy Boy is my favorite movie. Sorry, I didn't catch it. Let's just do that last one one again. Was I think we got it. Tommy Boy is my favorite movie. I just I want to make sure that we support our patrons who have been supporting us. You're absolutely right, DJ. Tommy Boy is my favorite movie. Oh, I didn't think you liked it that much. Josh Frigo. And dramatically placed hot dog. Hey, dramatically placed hot dog. Gabby Hoffman, also in this movie. <laughs> the owner of said dramatically placed hot dog. How about that? That is exciting. Thank you all very, very much for <laughs> support like them. Patreon.com slash your inner child's an idiot. And hey, if you don't mind, please fill out the survey. Please, please, please. Give us some information. You get an extra episode. I'm gonna get or a you recap the episodes recap. you've already listened to. But we'll probably say something embarrassing. I will play say something embarrassing. Hey, Damon. Yeah. H and G. Hi and goodbye. I did like NY. <laughs> And the dad confidently no saying, no way. And he's like, no, that's NW.